0: When I teach uh, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, at the seminary, I begin the course with a verse from Matthew chapter 13, verse 52. It's the last parable in a series of parables of the kingdom in, in uh, Matthew 13. And uh, verse uh, 52 says, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old, and I think in a very uh, wonderful and profound way, uh, Jesus is speaking about uh, things that we've been discussing in the first session, Uh, the fact that when you understand the law in relationship to the kingdom of heaven, then you are able to appreciate what is there, and also as you understand the fulfillment of all that is is there you're able to uh, glory in a completely new light, or in a uh, fuller light than has been previously uh, previously known? And so that I think should be our our aim is to rejoice in both old as well as new treasures. Now, in this session, I want to direct your attention to Matthew chapter nine, verses fourteen through seventeen. Matthew nine fourteen to 17. Now John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch will tear away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. This uh, passage that I've just read starts out simply enough But when it is done, as you work your way from verse 14 to verse 17, you find yourself swimming in an ocean that is as wonderful as it is profound and glorious as it is liberating. We're in a part of Matthew's Gospel here in chapter 9 where Matthew has ingeniously interwoven fast-paced accounts of Jesus' miracles with sections like this one in which we're told important things about Jesus' and his kingdom. The verse begins, or the section begins, with a question. One day, while Jesus is ministering, some disciples of John the Baptist come to him, and they want to know why it is that, that they, the disciples of John the Baptist, and the Pharisees fast, but Jesus' disciples do not fast. Now, we're not told what motivated their question, Uh, Were they genuinely interested in knowing the answer? Were they perhaps trying to find fault with Jesus and his disciples? Maybe they were a little jealous that their own uh, master's popularity was diminishing, whereas Jesus' popularity was increasing. John doesn't seem to have been worried about this, that is John the Baptist, but sometimes, you know, disciples can go beyond their their teachers and the disciples can be more concerned about the the honors of their teachers than the teachers uh, themselves regardless of their motivation it's a good question and i'm glad they asked it and the uh, answer of jesus is well is wonderful and profound indeed now it's important for us to know that both the pharisees and the disciples of john the baptist were ascetics that is they they uh, were strictly self-disciplined. They avoided uh, the pleasures and luxuries of life in their pursuit of spirituality. Although the disciples of John and the Pharisees were, were different at many points, uh, in this regard, they had some things in common. The Pharisees fasted often. It was an essential part of their worship of God. And they would fast in order to give themselves to the contemplation of God and uh, to prayer that God would fulfill his promises. The disciples of John shared this perspective on fasting and so it has struck them that the disciples of Jesus do not fast. Pharisees fast, we fast. What about your disciples? Why don't your disciples fast? Well, Jesus gives a two-part answer to that question or To put it another way, he answers the question, and then he throws in a little extra. And it's the little extra that we really want to get to, but we'll work our way through his answer. Uh, He he answers the question, and then he expands the the theological horizon. And he says things that I am sure made absolutely no sense to the disciples when, uh, when they were spoken. Either his disciples, if they were listening, or the disciples of John the Baptist. But I am very certain that when the Holy Spirit come and came and when the Holy Spirit illuminated their minds, they had one of those aha experiences. You know? <laughs> those wonderful times of serendipity <laughs> that we have. Ah, the lights go on, The music is playing. I see, I see. And uh, it, I would have liked to have been there when they had this discussion, when this came up. Do you remember when he said that? We get it now. We get it now. Well, I trust that that we'll get it as well. Well, why, why don't his disciples fast? Well, Jesus says, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? It's an amazing answer. It's really an infuriating answer, an offensive answer, if it were not true. The disciples, his disciples, do not fast. They cannot fast. Why? Because he's with them. He is the bridegroom, and it is inappropriate to fast in his presence. When the bridegroom is present, you don't fast, you rejoice. The bridegroom language may seem to be nothing more than a clever metaphor on the part of Jesus until we realize that there's a couple of things going on. First of all, Jesus is picking up on some of John the Baptist's own teaching. Now remember, he's speaking to John's disciples. What Jesus is basically saying to the disciples is, you need to listen more carefully to your own teacher. John chapter 3, verses 28 through 30, you yourselves can testify that I said, this is John the Baptist preaching, I am not the Christ, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and now it is complete. He must become greater, I must become less. In terms of homiletics, it's an interesting uh, example, illustration of a teacher beginning where his audience was and then taking them step by step to a place that, that not even entered their wildest dreams. So he begins by using language that referred to explicit teaching from John himself. Jesus is the bridegroom. They cannot fast in his presence. That is inappropriate. But there is more. If we start asking ourselves, well, where did this bridegroom language come from? Well, it came from John, but where did John get it from? The answer is the Old Testament scriptures. This language is part of the way that God revealed himself to the children of Israel. Isaiah 54 and verse 5, For your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. Or Isaiah 62 verses 4 and 5, No longer will they call you deserted or your land called desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah, my delight is in her, and your land Beulah, married, for the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. As a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And then Hosea chapter 2, verses 16 through 20. In that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. This bridegroom language or wedding language Bride, bridegroom language is used by Jesus in his own preaching and teaching. And it is also used of Jesus in the New Testament. Let me just uh, reference a few of these instances for you. Matthew 22, verse 2, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Matthew 25, verse 1, at that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Ephesians 5, verses 23 through 32, I won't read the whole section, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave gave himself up for her, to make her holy. And then when we come to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verses 7 and 9, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Then the angel said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. And then finally, Revelation 21, verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. When Jesus calls himself the bridegroom, it's not just a cute little metaphor. It's not a way of of, uh, dodging a question. He is making a profound uh, claim. He is claiming to be God and he is claiming to be Messiah. He's not just another prophet like Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Daniel. He is greater than all of these, and he's certainly not playing second fiddle uh, to some shyster like Joseph Smith or any other false prophet who has, who has come along. Uh, his disciples do not fast. They, they cannot fast because of who he is. Fasting and weeping are inappropriate At that point in time, instead there should be feasting, there should be celebration. This is a special time. He is a special person. The long-awaited bridegroom has come. God has come to redeem his people. But as I said, I'm sure his language was beyond them at the time. He goes on to say in the kind of second part of his answer before branching out theologically. The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. They don't fast now because I'm here, but I'm not always going to be here. I'm going to be taken from them, and when I am taken from them, my disciples will fast. Now again, meaningless to the people at the time. One of the things I appreciate about the biblical record, the Gospels, is how, how they are so honest in in describing the disciples and the reaction of the disciples to Jesus' teaching and how difficult it was for them to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. When would Jesus be taken from them? Well, we know what he means uh, he's referring to those events that, that would bring him to the cross, that would see him rising from the dead, and would eventually uh, take him to the right hand of God. That enthronement at the right hand of God, his coronation, if you like, which was uh, celebrated uh, not only in heaven but by the pouring out of the Spirit, the Father and the Son pouring out the Spirit upon the earth, the inauguration of the the new covenant uh, began a period of time theologically, eschatologically, in which we still live. so important to point that out to people. We live in the last days. We've been living in the last days for some 2,000 years. Why are they the last days? They are the last days because the next great redemptive event is the return of Jesus at the end of the age. And we have a job to do until that time comes. Jesus is no longer with us in person. Now he has very graciously poured out the Spirit upon us. The Spirit has come to live in our lives. Another paraclete, another comforter, another advocate. One like Jesus himself. The Spirit of Christ who who ministers in us and, and through us. But these days, these gospel days, this dispensation, if you like, uh, in which we live, is a time that is marked not only by the advance of the gospel and great blessing, but it's a time that's marked by suffering and persecution. Personally, I think it's going to be that way to the end. And I think we need to have that balance. You know, sometimes people are too gloomy. Circle the wagons and hang on until the rapture or some. Uh, other kind of event like that, you know, just hold hold tight. It's getting worse and worse, and and the best we can do is just, uh, you know, try to hang on to our own faith until Jesus comes again. And then there's other people who are, well, they're very optimistic, let's put it that way. The world, uh, you know, the post-millennial crowd, the world is going to be Christianized. Mm. The gospel is going to be uh, successful beyond our wildest dreams. Well, which is it? I like the suggestion that there's an element of truth in both things. Uh, during this gospel age, there will be tremendous advances that are made. The, the nations will be evangelized. This gospel of the kingdom must be preached in all the world as a testimony to the nations, and only then will the end come. But that gospel is not going to result in the Christianization of world there will be trouble that accompanies the preaching of that gospel. I mean, in our world today, there, there are people, Christians, that live in relative freedom like we do here in the United States or myself in, in Canada, where we're able to meet without any kind of interference. But there are other Christians living at this very same time, on this very same planet, who are in fear of government officials, of, of persecution, even of physical violence and death. These things existing simultaneously. And they may well carry on to the end, depending on your eschatological framework. What is it that could bring, if there's a time of great trouble that descends upon the church just prior to the return of the Lord, which I think the scriptures seem to indicate, what would provoke such a thing? Is it a weak, anemic, laodicetan-type church? I don't think so. I think it's a church that is alive in terms of revival, a church that has has found its focus in the Lord Jesus Christ, a church that is aggressively evangelizing. That church that, that upholds the, the truthfulness of God's word and the unique authority of Jesus Christ will come under the fire of this wicked world. Yes. We can be sure of that. And so we live between the times, and they are times of blessing. They are times of suffering. They are times of, of persecution. And these are the times that I believe Jesus is referring to when he says here in the first century, the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. Jesus has come and he has laid the foundation of his kingdom. He has guaranteed that sin will be vanquished, that death will be destroyed, that the broken law satisfied. He has returned to heaven, and now he rules until all enemies are put under his feet. We're waiting for him to return. We're waiting for the experience of all that he died to do. I mean, don't forget that. It's John Piper in his book, Future Grace, and that's an excellent book, by the way. It, it's divided into nice little small chapters, and I believe there. are there are 31 chapters in there, so you can kind of go through it in a month and read it in your devotions, a chapter a month, and it's quite easy to do, three or four pages a chapter, and, and he points out in that book that although salvation is described in the New Testament as being a past experience, we have been saved, a present experience, we are being saved, the predominant emphasis of the New Testament is on the fact that we shall be saved, it is future-oriented. That's very important. The best is yet to come, as we like to say. And that, that encourages me, because you know sometimes I look at the, at the Church of Jesus Christ, and I look at myself and I look at my brothers and sisters, and I think, "Lord, is this any way to, uh, to run an organization?" <laughs> I, I know you, I know you've chosen the, the, the strange people of the world, but really <laughs> is, there, is there any hope for us on the horizon? And, and, I, and I know that um, I ought to be far more advanced in holiness than I am. I know that I've, I have enormous privileges. I know that my eyes have seen what people in ancient times longed to see. And I, in some ways, have forgotten more than so many people in the world will ever know. And yet, has my holiness kept pace with my knowledge? Oh, no no in fact in some ways the more you sort of learn the more you realize you don't know and the more you think you're, you're you know what it is to walk with the lord the more you become disillusioned with your own progress in grace and so how encouraging it is to know that the best is yet to come that jesus who died that jesus who said it is finished knew what he was talking about That wasn't just wasn't just wishful thinking it is finished the foundation has been laid and when salvation history has run its course god's people will be redeemed and will be purified and will be made into the image of the dear son himself but between now and then we struggle it's a veil of tears there are setbacks and we are called upon to fast, not just refraining, I think, at times from food and, and, and drink in order that we might give ourselves the attention of God, but it wouldn't hurt us in our day to refrain from technology. Can, can I live, can you live a day without a cell phone, pager, email, computer, television? It is important. And Jesus, I think, says this is normative during these times for us to realize that it's a struggle. Our brothers and sisters, are, sorry, we're struggling. Uh, yes, we, we see churches established, but the pace is so slow. And, and, and yes, they're there, but oh, they're so small. It's terrible to see turf wars going on in, in regions. You know, you've got Christians like drug gangs or motorcycle gangs fighting over turf. You know, if every church that existed, every church building was full of people, there'd still be all sorts of them that, that weren't saved. But do we ever take that next step and do what Spurgeon used to, I understand. If Spurgeon wasn't happy with, with what he was seeing taking place, enough people weren't being converted, he called a time of prayer and fasting. And of course, he, he probably saw more people converted in, in a year than we'll see some of us in our lifetime. But, but when the pace slowed... Lord, we need your, your help. Of course, we always need his help. But uh, Jesus is talking about it. I think we need to take that, 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 that seriously. There are times when, when the, the, the demands of the kingdom and the pressure that we're experiencing in our own lives person or in the lives of our brothers and sisters require special, unique action. And we say, okay, I'm going to push this world out. In a sense, we do that every Lord's Day when we meet. You notice, I mean, in my own lifetime, I, I, I can remember, I'm the oldest of four boys, and I can remember us all with our bow ties uh, walking to church <laughs> with my parents, I don't know what we were thinking about then, uh, because I wouldn't be caught dead, you know, <laughs> making my kids do that. There, they wouldn't let me do that, but but uh, we were much more compliant. And uh, we walk along, and and even people who weren't in church, they'd be sitting, you know, on their porch reading the newspaper. You know, you might find the odd uh, automobile aficionado polishing his his idol, <laughs> but. But, 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 you know, lawns had been cut the day before, and it was primarily a day for relaxation. Of course, today it's become, what, anything goes. One of the, one of the biggest shopping days in Canada. They don't even really start stocking shelves in the grocery store until late Friday because the, the main days are, are Saturday and, and uh, Sunday. Well, this, this uh, world in which we live that has gone completely uh, secular, and and it impresses upon us all the time there's there's i think a temptation for christians to you know to to get involved in that world and to become so in it that they they forget who they are and why they're here and and one thing that we do when we gather on the lord's day or any other time of day any other time of the week that we gather is we're saying okay i've got to create space or i've got to create time just let this world go on. I don't care. Let's let it go on. It is important that I meet with my brothers and sisters. It's important that I pray. It's important that I hear the word of God. These things are important. Yes, there's, there's, there's always a million things to do, but, but I must not give these up. It, it's a form of that kind of fasting. I think fasting takes it a step further and says, you know, we are feeling the pressure. We are feeling our weakness. The end has not yet come. It is a struggle. The bridegroom is not in our presence, as he will be one day. And so we fast, and we pray, and we, we're reminded that we don't live by bread alone. It, it's not our organizing ability. It's not our academic ability. It's not our you know, um, personalities that will win the day. It's the power of God manifested in Jesus Christ through the preaching and the living out of the gospel. Now, Jesus takes it one step further. He escalates it. No one, he says, while well, you, well, you fellas are chewing on that one, the bridegroom's going to be taken away then. Don't worry, fellas, my, my disciples will fast then. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. In other words, the coming of Jesus Say, how has that got anything to do with what we were just talking about? It has everything. The coming of Jesus not only necessitates personal change, that his coming, and we could say really his coming and going, the coming and going of Jesus not only necessitates personal change, they don't fast now, they will fast, but introduce sweeping covenantal change. He introduces the age of fulfillment, or what is described in the scriptures as the new covenant, the new covenant era. And Jesus illustrates that by using two examples that would have been readily understood in his day. Unshrunk cloth, an old garment. You can't put New unshrunk cloth on an old garment because they are not compatible. If you put unshrunk cloth on an old garment that has already been shrunk, when you wash it, the new patch will shrink and it will make the tear worse, not better. Well, what does that mean? Well, I think it simply means this the old garment is the old covenant, it's the old covenant made with Israel at Mount Sinai. It was given to the children of Israel to show them that they were sinners who needed a savior. Because the old covenant is old, it cannot be patched. It must be replaced with something new. And then to drive the point home, slightly different metaphor, image, he talks about the incompatibility of new wine and old wineskins. New wine requires what? New wine skins. Old wine skins, and I know nothing about this from personal experience, I might add. <laughs> Maybe some of you do, I don't. Uh, old wine skins grow brittle over time. New wine gives off fermentation gases that would, if you try to put new wine in the, in the old uh, wine skins, it would burst those wine skins. What is the new wine? The new wine is the new life of the kingdom. It's the reign of the kingdom of heaven. It's the reign of God in Jesus Christ that He has inaugurated. And He is telling us that it cannot be constrained or contained within the structures of Judaism. It needs new structures, it requires a new covenant, a new high priest, a new priesthood, a new temple. Uh, a new and a more extensive outpouring of the Holy Spirit. By making these claims, by using these illustrations, Jesus is is doing something similar to what we saw this morning. He's making an astounding claim. He's basically uh, telling us that he has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. He has come to fulfill the old covenant as it was given to Israel. The giving of a covenant was a gracious act on the part of God. That we, we, we be careful that we 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 don't want to look at the old testament, we don't want to look at the old covenant as you know as being you know something that was, you know, kind of all law, all duty. Uh, it was gracious. It was gracious on the part of God to, to give people a law uh, to govern their behavior. It was gracious upon God to, uh, to, to come to them and to show them that they were uh, sinners who needed a redeemer. It was gracious of God to, to typify the work of that redeemer as he does over and over again in the Old Covenant, in the Old, uh, in the Old Testament. But if God had stopped there, it would have been a curse and not a blessing. If God had stopped there, it wouldn't have done anybody any good. The law convicted of sin. It pointed to the fact that something needed to be done about sin. It even pointed to the one who would do something about sin one day. And that day came when Jesus came. And that someone that was anticipated, of course, was Jesus. And so these these metaphors, these illustrations, uh, remind us, Again, that Jesus is the key to understanding Scripture, and He's the key to understanding the times in which we live. We mourn and fast now because we're waiting for His return. We're not living as the children of Israel did in the Old Testament. I have the privilege, as it's a small Bible school, to teach not only systematic theology but pastoral theology, and it's a wonderful combination because you're able to take the truths of systematics, and systematics is very important. It's got a sort of bum-wrap in these days. And and it's good to study biblical theology, but don't become so enamored with biblical theology that you forget systematics. Biblical theology is an important component, building block, that prepares us to do systematics. Systematics is the application of the Word of God as a whole to life, and we need that. There's too much of academia that's purely descriptive. Right. So it just describes what is going on, and it never gets the point of saying, all right, so what? What does it mean? What does this mean to you? And that's our job. We're not, we're not there to describe phenomena, show how smart we are. We're there to say, okay, now what does this mean? What does this mean in my life? What does it mean in your life? What does it mean in the world around us? And the systematic theology, if it's done properly, moves us uh, in... in in that direction. Well, one of the benefits of doing Systematics and Pastoral Theology is that in the Pastoral Theology course, based on what hopefully they've learned in Systematics, you can say to them, listen, you're a pastor of a church, a Christian church. You need to remember that you're addressing a church of Christians, uh, people who have been born again, people who have the spirit living within them. You're not addressing old Israel. You ought not to be, it's not, I mean, I've heard guys get up there and they, 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 they talk to Christian congregation as though they're addressing old Israel. If you've got that kind of mixed multitude, you've got a lot of work to do. Now, it's, it's inevitably true that there will be people in the church, you know, attending services who don't necessarily know the Lord. But, I mean, when we're dealing, operating in a New Testament context and we're evangelizing people and they're being saved and they're being baptized and they're being brought into the church, we're dealing with, uh, with, with, with a new humanity. We're dealing with, with the Lord's people. We're dealing with uh, people in whom the reign of God has already come. There ought to be an attraction for God's word, an attraction for Christ, and a desire to worship. And if those things are not there, by definition... They're not Christians. And, and it, it I think is essential uh, to, to work for the purity of the church and then as we're dealing with uh, regenerate people to speak to them accordingly and to appeal to them as brothers and sisters. Have you ever noticed how, how ethics in the New Testament is profoundly Christological as opposed to law-based? Yes, I know all about uh, this is the first commandment with a promise. <laughs> Uh, Ephesians chapter 6 verse uh, 4 but I know that the predominant emphasis of the New Testament is you can't live this way. (laughs) Don't you know? Don't you know you were bought with a price? Don't you know the spirit of God lives within you? Don't you know what you're destined for? Man, you've got to put off the old. You've got to put on the new. You're being renewed in the image of the creator. That's, That's Powerful. That's powerful language. That speaks to the people of God. That's more powerful than anything you could do by reading a list of rules and regulations. You know, I know of places where they say, well, you know, I'm not so sure about that church. The law is never read there. What are you talking about the law is never read there? Man, I think think there's far more motivation to be found holding up a crucified Savior who died for the purity of his bride and say now, listen, everybody has this hope within them, purifies themselves as he is pure. Amen. And the people of God respond to that. They want that. They want that with all of their hearts. And it's our job to, to encourage that in them and to try to live that before them. <coughs> now, I step by David, uh, David Morris. He has, doesn't he have a wonderful way of uh, Setting you up for what he's going to say, (laughs) in a way, in a way, how do you disagree with him? You know, (laughs) how do I disagree with um, uh, with Mr. Gill? He says, but I'm going to dissent from him anyway. This is very, very gracious. I've I've learned a lot from watching uh, how he how he frames that and sets that up. I'm going to step here on maybe, uh, can of course we'd say it's on thin ice. I don't know if that makes any sense. I'm sure it does not Pennsylvania further south. I don't know if that makes any sense. But uh, I'm going to skate, as it were. We're all supposed to be hockey players, although I don't really like the game at all. But uh, I know other people do. (laughs) Uh, Skate on thin ice. This whole matter of the the newness of the new covenant and the pouring out of the Spirit is something that I think we need to ponder uh, long and hard. Uh, it has occurred to me, as I'm sure it's occurred to you, that we don't have a, we don't have a legislation like the Mosaic Law in the New Covenant. Th- that is, you know, you, you go back and you read that Mosaic legislation, you go back and read the ten words in Exodus 20, and then, as Blake mentioned yesterday, you know, all, that, all those supporting laws and stipulations and whatnot that God gives. And they're very detailed. It covers every area of life, got all sorts of very specific things. If this happens, this is what you do, boom, 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 boom. We don't, we don't have that kind of thing, generally speaking, in the New Covenant. Have you ever wondered why? I think the answer to that is we have the Spirit. Now, I'm not trying to, uh, and please hear me, I'm not trying to set the Word and the Spirit in contradiction. I want to never, ever do that. Of course, it's the Spirit who who has inspired the biblical writers. Mm. So we never want to do that. But I, well, this has become a real uh, sort of bugaboo of mine uh, since teaching, and since stepping out of the pastorate and traveling around and looking at what's being done in in the church is to say, listen, brothers and sisters, it's time to start to think about moving in the freedom of the Holy Spirit within the confines of the new covenant. Yes. Uh, that is, I think there's an ecclesiastical hyper-Calvinism that needs to be given a good kick in the shins mm-hmm. by, by, by some of us. And that is this, uh, this whole idea that uh, you know, we, we, we treat the New Testament as though it's some kind of new legislation yeah. And sometimes this is, of course, phrased as the regulative principle, and I've got no problem with the regulative principle if you mean we're to be guided by Scripture. But if you, try to, if you try to tell me that Scripture has laid out in detail every last thing that ought to take place in a church service, or every kind of, you know, has an answer, there's a, a sort of verse and reference for every problem that Christians will, I say, you're barking up the wrong tree. The Lord has laid out for us boundary lines, clearly defined boundary lines that we must not transgress. But there is a wonderful liberty and freedom found within the New Covenant. And there is a teaching ministry of the Spirit that helps us and guides us and gives us wisdom not just you know, ourselves, but especially as we get together with our brothers and sisters and we, we interact and we pray together and we wrestle with the word of God and we, you know, we, we look at what's ahead of us and then we say, okay, now how are we going to, how are we going to tackle this? And so what a congregation may be comfortable with in, in one setting doesn't have to be reproduced exactly in another. So tired of this cookie-cutter so that, you know, whoever sort of rises to the top of the evangelical ladder then becomes the paradigm for how we do ministry. Haven't we learned by now that the Lord delights in variety? That, that, that he uh, gives us a creativity and that he wants us to use that for his honor and glory. One of the things that I love about Toronto, it, it recently surpassed, according to Google, if you can trust them, I forget who I looked at on Google, but... It recently surpassed Miami as the most uh, multinational city in the world. 49.6, something like that, percent of the population of Toronto came from somewhere else. And Miami's not far behind, but very, very... One of the, one of the glories of that, especially as you start to see the breakdown of, of ethnic churches, and, I, and I, I love to see that. I mean, not break down in the sense that they have Heresy, and they go. out. But you know, where instead of you just have a group of uh, of, of Christians, meaning defined by their sort of ethnicity, where you start to see people from all different ethnic backgrounds coming together and worshiping. Where I, what I love to see about that is the, is the different flavors that, that it brings to that. The the richness, the glory of it. It's it, it's wonderful to see, and and I, I I just bristle when I get you know books being read or people taking up books that people have read sometimes going beyond the intention of the authors, I'll acknowledge that. They say, well, this is how you do it. This is how you do church. So, who said that? Well, so-and-so said that. Well, well, uh, where's his proof? Well, he's got this and that. Yeah, well, go look at the proof. And, and you'll see there, yeah, we're supposed to read the Bible. We're supposed to pray. We're supposed to sing. We're supposed to enjoy fellowship. But the Lord hasn't given us an order of service. I don't really think he cares what order you do it in. Right. I just think he wants it done, and we do it in a way that glorifies and honors him. Now, if I can skate on really thin ice. <laughs> <laughs> Brothers and sisters, we need to think about the role of women in Amen. churches. <laughs> we need to think about the role of women. Now, I, I am a complementarian, but of the, of the you know, most mild kind. <laughs> I do believe that there is a, uh, in this age, not going to be in the age to come. In the age to come, we won't be married or given in marriage. Uh, this, we're, this is a temporary uh, structure that will one day be done away. If there is a male headship that exists now, I think that eldership is reserved for men. But, but I'm not sure how that how we have worked that out all the time can be justified in Scripture. I think there's an awful lot of patriarchal tradition that has been imported into the reading of Scripture and that's being kind of baptized as orthodoxy. And, and the reason I say that is because you go into settings today. And you know you can you can I've been in lots of churches where you got women in the congregation sometimes more women than men but there's just no visible sort of participation of them uh, in the service at all and I don't know something about that just doesn't strike me as correct why because it's a new covenant but well, what happened to the new covenant spirit was poured out who was spirit poured out on well you know what Blake said yesterday very rightly the old covenant was tribal prophets priests kings. Uh, People who worked on the tabernacle, artisans and so forth, gifted by the Spirit to do the work. Was the Spirit involved in, in, in regeneration? Of course he was. No one has ever become a believer without the work of the Holy Spirit, even Old Covenant or New Covenant, certainly, certainly. But one of the marks of the New Covenant is the liberal, abundant distribution of the Spirit on all of God's people, young and old, men and women. And men and women together are what? Prophets, priests, and kings. Not just men. Prophets, priests, and kings. Now that's got to be fit within the norms of scripture. And I think you do have the role of elders reserved for uh, some men, not all men. By no means for some men. And you have, uh, I think... uh, Headship still within the family, and and and, and so our male headship and responsibilities there. But my goodness, some of the some of the things that I observe maybe it's just the circles in which I move in, where it's still very very male dominated, very very male oriented. I mean, I I, I took Hebrew from a lady professor. I had people ask me, do you think it's appropriate that you, a man, take Hebrew? From a lady, <laughs> I said, "I sure do. I don't know Hebrew. She does." <laughs> I'm happy for all that she has to teach me. We got students come into the school, say, "Well, you know, we we don't know. Uh, we have chapel uh, twice a week. I don't know if we can have any here from any of the women in chapel. That'd be a violation." I said, "Just a second. Just a second. What do you mean you can't have women? Uh, you can't I, personally. I don't know why you can't have women speak in a." Uh, the so-called sacred worship service, provided they're got something to say and they're doing it under the authority of the leadership of the church. Why? Well you got people first Corinthians eleven, I know you got them prophesying here I know first Corinthians 14, I know that, but I think there's a I think there's um some something specific that's going on there. I know about First Timothy chapter two as well, but I, I, I think you've got to make sure you're interpreting that in light of everything else that's being said. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm burdened about this because I think that I know that women have a lot to offer to the church of Jesus Christ. I know that because I'm married to a very wise woman who just happens to be Deborah. <laughs> and I know that when I've got together with my male elders and board members, and we've solved all the problems of the church, and I go home to my wife, and I say, well, this is what we've decided. <laughs> uh, she says to me, well, that's very interesting. Now, have you considered this? <laughs> and who's going to do that? And, uh, well, what? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, and, and, I, and, and sometimes among young guys who get hold of the reform thing, they, they also become a little chauvinist. And uh, there they go. And, and, and they do it in good conscience. But here's where I say, let, okay, let's slow down here, guys. Let's take a deep breath, and uh, let's remember that the Spirit has been poured out. That there is an, a wonderful equality a within boundaries that is found in the New Testament. Without destroying rules ro- uh, or doing away with them prematurely, they, there's still some boundary markers in place. But hey, let's think creatively about Uh, I mean, it's even been a discussion in the school. Why do you let? Why do you have women study at the seminary? Aren't you implicitly encouraging them? Why do you let them take homiletics? Are you are you saying that? I say, listen. Why can't women as well as men be taught how to speak publicly? Why can't they be taught how to clearly articulate the message of the gospel? Why shouldn't women in this? Can you imagine uh, in this day not training? women. So some, some of these characters you listen to, you think that after girls have done high school, the best thing they can do is to get married and produce children. Prove that biblically from the New Testament, especially in light of a passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I don't think it can be done. There are different callings. There are different uh, things that God has, has, has uh, given us. And we need men as well as women to be taught uh, in the things of God. And uh, if they're going to be teaching their own children, if they're going to be interacting in this society, um, they, they need to be taught, they need to learn. And I can tell you as, as a professor that some of the best papers I read are not written by the, the men, but are written by the ladies, careful researchers. And they take what they're doing very, very seriously. And, uh, and so I, I, it's not, I, I'm not trying to suggest that we overturn um, too much, but I am saying this is the new covenant era. We've got boundary markers given to us in scripture. We've got, we've got principles. We've got, we've got rules, if you like. The, the, the Bible is uh, something that is to constrain our behavior. But let's make sure we're interpreting it properly. And let's remember that we move in the freedom of the Holy Spirit. And that there are, to put it uh, in a colloquial way, there are different ways to skin the cat, so to speak. There, there, there are... <laughs> there are are different approaches and what works in one place may not work in another and instead of us insisting upon a kind of bland conformity and uniformity let us under the authority of God guided by the scriptures motivated by the spirit longing that Jesus Christ be glorified uh, seek to produce congregations that will uniquely minister uh, to the geographical locations in which God in his sovereignty has placed them.